Good morning and welcome to Element. My name is Jonathan G and I am pretty surprised to be standing here in front of you because I am exhausted. Uh, me and my wife ended up going to a rock show last night, poor planning, and got home a little bit later than anticipated. So it's a small miracle that I'm here today. Um, but I guess I'm still young enough to do those kind of things. So I talked to Aaron earlier this week, and he said that is something he would never be able to do because, quote, he is too old. Um, although he did do something pretty crazy, he got on a plane at 6 a.m. this morning to go preach at our church plant in Colorado Springs for 5 o'clock tonight. So be praying for that as well. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I co-lead a gospel community group here with my wife and Mike Reed called Storytellers. If you don't know me, I'd love the opportunity to talk to you after the service about the message, gospel communities, or any other questions that you may have. We are in the middle of a topical sermon series called Miracles. And I promise I won't sing the song, I Believe in Miracles, and you'll be glad I didn't. Um, quick little tangent, uh, I worked at a psychiatric hospital a few years ago, and I was tasked with leading a karaoke group. Yeah, I know. And uh, so one day I was singing a Beatles song, because why not, and um, someone in the group actually attempted suicide two days prior and yelled, um, I tried to kill myself, and my punishment for failing is listening to this guy sing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. But uh, back to the sermon. The miracle that I get to talk about is a pretty big one. Honestly, probably the biggest miracle in Christianity. And we're going to have kind of an Easter service today um, because I get to talk about the resurrection. If you are new to Element, welcome. If you didn't bring a Bible, they are located under the seats in front of you. And if you don't own one, please take one. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 28, 5 through 6 says this. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the resurrection the gift that completely reconciles us to you and frees us from shame, death, and gives us a foundation for our faith. With the resurrection, you have shown that you and you alone can conquer death. I thank you for the grace that the cross and the resurrection affords us. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm a little apprehensive to be in front of you, not just because I'm tired, um, but because this sermon is very large and I want to be able to do the topic justice. Furthermore, um, I'm uncomfortable on a different level as well because this past year I fell into some sin that I'm not very proud of. Um, but we'll talk a little bit more on that a little bit later. So when Aaron asked if I wanted to preach, um, it was approximately eight months ago. He said, we're doing a topical sermon on miracles. I originally wanted Jonah, um, but Aaron is a freak and wrote the message before he even asked me. Um, 
I finished my sermon this Thursday, so a little bit of juxtaposition on time management skills. Um, so he said Jonah was taken, um, and jokingly then I said, well, what about the resurrection? Um, assuming that he would talk about the resurrection on Easter. Um, nope. Um, and he said, go for it. Uh, the resurrection is yours. And I'm glad that I had that prompt. Because the resurrection is so cool and acutely meaningful for this exact season of my life. And so I hope that today you will have a new appreciation for the topic of the resurrection. Before we get to the resurrection, though, we need to understand what a miracle is. Our culture uses the term incorrectly. I used it already incorrectly today. Um, another way I use it incorrectly is it's a miracle that I got out of bed before the snooze alarm went off for the sixth time. It's a miracle that this spread is not actually butter. <laughs> wow, bigger, bigger response than anticipated. Um, or it's a miracle that country music is actually popular. Maybe that one is a miracle, I'm not actually sure. Our culture uses the word miracle as an expression of a rare or surprising occurrence, but it does not use it correctly. The dictionary defines miracle as an effect or an extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all human or natural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural cause, a work of God. I think the way that our culture uses the word miracle can be a slippery slope. I know it was for me. When I was in college, I went through a period where I started to question my faith and kind of make my faith my own and not my parents. So I was really questioning if I believed in Christianity because it's true versus my parents taught me. During this time, um, whenever I read or heard about a miracle, I would frequently just attribute it to allegory. I would attribute it to something that didn't actually happen, but the writer wanted to convey a certain point. And I was doing okay with that until I sat down and actually started thinking about the resurrection. Um, You can't really do that with the resurrection. And so that's what we're actually going to talk about a little bit today. But if you are in the place where you're questioning the validity of something you hear in the Bible, I would encourage you to ask deep, meaningful questions. I would also encourage you not to suspend your faith simply because of your questions. Questions are good and healthy. And our faith does not rest in miracles. It rests in the person of Jesus. For me, though, as I said, the events surrounding the resurrection led me to rethink my position. So historical scholars, both Christian and non-Christian, and that's important to remember, um, do not doubt a few surrounding facts about the resurrection. The first is that Jesus was a real historical person. Jesus was crucified and buried. Three days after his death, his body went missing. There were reported appearances of Jesus over the course of 40 days to both believers and non-believers. Individuals who Jesus appeared to um, during this time had their lives transformed and began to claim Christ's resurrection, even to the point of being martyred for their proclamation. And finally, um, by AD 325, 51% of the Roman Empire claimed Christ as God. 
That might not seem significant, but keep in mind that this explosion of Christianity happened before Constantine came into power and made Christianity the state religion. So those are just historical facts, Christian or non-Christian, that exist, and it's your responsibility to interpret them. Um, if you want recommendations on the historicity of the resurrection, there's two that I could recommend. One is Miracles by C.S. Lewis, and the second is a really short book by N.T. Wright. It's 850 pages, and uh, it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. These historical facts that I mentioned shook me and kind of made me think of how would I actually answer these. And the objections or interpretations that kind of got to me the most are going to be the ones that I, I'm going to talk about. There are hundreds of interpretations, but I think these are um, probably the few best ones. So the first interpretation of the historical tangible facts is that Jesus did not actually die. Despite being tortured, hung on a cross, and pierced by a spear, he just kind of passed out and then was put in a tomb and then kind of came to and then like had superhuman strength and pushed a, a boulder away and then appeared to people despite medical conditions and so on and so forth and actually convinced people that he resurrected. Uh, this was a really popular theory um, up until like the 1990s where somebody actually wrote a physician statement on um, Jesus' torture, suffering, um, and essentially said it's impossible for him to still be alive after something like that. Um, but it's called the swoon theory. The second interpretation took me um, a little bit more time to, to wrestle with. And this is an interpretation that the resurrection was simply a mass psychological delusion. This interpretation is essentially that Jesus died, but he did not physically raise from the grave. Instead, the resurrection accounts were a form of delusion or a type of psychotic process involving cognitive dissonance. Um, cognitive dissonance is essentially knowing something is false and acting as if it is true. Um, and there's a certain objection with cognitive dissonance, uh, mainly in terms of all the disciples. Even if they knew that it was false, they still, none of them broke, none of them recanted Christ. They all claimed Christ even to the point of death and Christianity spread, which would be very hard to do um, if there wasn't a psychotic process. Um, but I feel especially equipped to deal with this interpretation considering I make my living working with severe mental illness as a therapist and the majority of my clients experience some type of psychosis, delusions, disorganization, or hallucinations. Um, Richard Carrier uh, was a popular skeptic and he proposed this idea and he stated, I believe the best explanation consistent with both scientific findings and the surviving evidence is that the first Christians experienced hallucinations of the risen Christ of one form or another, and the ancient world to experience supernatural manifestations of ghosts, gods, and wonders was not only accepted, but encouraged. So although Richard Carrier is correct in the fact that supernatural manifestations of ghosts, gods, and wonders were encouraged in that culture, he misses understanding what um, hallucinations and delusions actually are. So typically, uh, delusions or hallucinations are intensely personal. 
That means that you are the person experiencing it. You don't experience it with other people. They're individual. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But hallucinations are a added experience to reality. Um, that could be hearing a different auditory voice. That could be seeing a shape or figure. Um, or even in some cases having like a tactile or olfactory thing. So feeling like someone is touching you or smelling things that don't actually exist. Um, a hallucination though, um, people who have them know that they are not real unless there is a delusion involved. A delusion is defined as a belief that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual facts. So oftentimes, if presented with actual facts, people who suffer from delusions will tend to double down on their own beliefs. There are a certain type of themes to delusions. There's paranoid or persecutory. That's people are out to get me. The government's watching me. Yes, the government is watching you, but way more intense um, than reality. Uh, the second is grandiose. Um, that means that you believe you are way more special or have inherited abilities that people should just intrinsically adore. Um, and in that category, there's a subset of religious delusions. So you are a prophet. I believe I am a prophet. I believe I am God. I believe I am Satan. Um, those are religious, grandiose delusions. Um, and then there's bizarre delusions and a few others, um, but this isn't a psychology class, so I'm not going to go into that. But even within the category of grandiose religious-themed delusions, a delusion is unique to that person suffering from the delusion, and as I said, that person is normally the center of the delusion, i.e., that they themselves are the Messiah, that they are an angel, they are God, or they are Satan. It would be very rare for, A, an individual to develop a delusion about something outside of themselves, and even more rare for a group of people to develop the same exact delusion and then add hallucinations on top of that who have no history of hallucinations or delusions before that point. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever been around a delusional person. Um, they typically do not do the best job of convincing people what they believe is real. Um, so let's say, hypothetically, even it was a mass delusion. I have very real significant doubts that a group of delusional people would be able to convince other people and not just start a movement, but sustain probably the most impactful historical movement of all time. So it's a pretty big leap. Another thing about delusions is they oftentimes ebb and flow in intensity. So what that means is they change over time. They soften, they differ. Um, I have a client with a grandiose delusion. Uh, and about a year ago, he believed that he himself was God, once again, egocentric. And his delusion was, A, he was God, and B, if he snapped his fingers, all overweight people would instantly be gone from the face of the earth. Um, kind of like Thanos. Um, spoiler alert, sorry about that. If you haven't seen it now, it's on, it's on you, though. So when he would sit in my office and we would reality test, he would sit there snapping. They're gone. Everyone's gone. And then he would see someone overweight. Oh, oh gosh, what do I do with this? His belief wouldn't change. Instead, he'd say, oh, the weather made it so I couldn't access my powers. Um, oh, maybe they're not actually overweight. 
but I'm still God, clearly. Um, about a few months ago, though, his delusion changed. He no longer believes that he is God. He believes he's a prophet. And as a result, he could look back at this past year of his life and be like, wow, that was pretty crazy that I thought I was God, but I'm definitely a prophet, um, and I definitely can't make overweight people disappear. But the delusion is still there. It just kind of changed over time. This change in delusional thinking happens more times than not. The delusion itself is not constant. It morphs to help the person make better sense out of the world. In the Bible, Paul talks about those who Christ appeared to in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, he being Jesus, most of who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which means have died. If this was a mass delusion, it would be exposed. Essentially, Paul is talking to people who are skeptical of the validity of what he is saying. He's talking to people who do not believe. And he says, hey, go talk to these people. They're alive. And he trusts that they're going to share the same story, their belief is going to be constant, and the gospel will spread. So people go and they talk to these people. And um, if it was a delusion, once again, likely would have changed over time. Some people would say, oh, I'm the resurrected Messiah. I am Jesus. Um, or they would say, oh, no, that was weird. That never happened. Those things didn't happen. And historically, Christianity spread. The final problem with the delusion, cognitive dissonance, psychotic theory, whatever you want to call it, is that it actually asserts an empty tomb. If the disciples and followers of Jesus were the ones experiencing hallucinations and being tricked into believing that Christ was alive when he was not, the question remains, who took Jesus' body? It certainly wasn't the people who killed him, because as Christianity would spread, they would just release the body and Christianity would fizzle out. But none of those things happened. So the two theories that I talk about require a lot more variables and seem pretty far-fetched, even if you are committed to God does not exist. And in my opinion, there's a lot more evidence to show the historicity of Jesus' resurrection than any of the alternatives. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to look for yourself. I want you to explore the options and the possibilities, because I believe you would find yourself in a similar predicament that I found myself in, unable to come up with any explanation that truly makes sense involving all of the historical facts other than the one that Jesus actually rose from the grave. So let's talk about that option. That is a theological miracle. It asserts that Jesus rose from the grave in a physical manner. So unlike the first two options that are pure naturalistic-only explanations, the theological miracle does not omit a supernatural possibility. It allows the transcendent creator to be part of the equation, which automatically permits true miracles. C.S. Lewis says this, But if we admit God, we must admit miracle. Indeed, indeed. You have no security against it. That is the bargain. 
In my opinion, if you reject the fact of the resurrection, it's not because of lack of evidence to support but rather you have an unwavering commitment to naturalism or you want to reject Jesus without looking at the facts and will refuse to consider the resurrection because it implies that there is a God and you are not God. The previous chair of modern history at Oxford University, Dr. Thomas Arnold, says this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God hath given us, Christ died and rose again from the dead. What a cool thing. This is the chair of history at Oxford saying, in everything he studied, this has the best evidence. So turning your Bibles to Luke 24, um, we're going to read a passage. Um, and so far, we've examined what the resurrection kind of is historically. We've looked at some different interpretations of it. But now let's turn our attention to what the resurrection actually is according to scripture. Um, each gospel account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all have an account of the resurrection. It's all pretty similar, but I like Luke's the best because he's a historian, and it's a little bit more detailed. So, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but that's a really cool part. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. That is the story of the resurrection. It tells the story of a man who Christians believe to be God in the flesh, who was committed to us by rescuing us through his death and then defeating death through his grave and resurrection. This is something that people who claim to be Christians will die on. It's non-negotiable. It's something called a closed-handed issue. A cool thing about the resurrection is that it wasn't an isolated event in Scripture. It's alluded at, um, prophesied about. Jesus talks about it. It's not something that is just like, oh, Jesus died and Jesus rose. No, it was well-documented. It was well-anticipated, um, even though people didn't fully anticipate it. 
Um, if we had more time, and unfortunately we don't, um, I would actually read all of Isaiah 53. This is a Old Testament prophet that essentially outlines that a Messiah will come, someone who's perfect, free of sin, will go to the cross for us, and then rise from the grave. It has huge implications for our faith, and if I ever get the opportunity to speak on the resurrection again, that's where I'm going to start. But I kind of hope Aaron doesn't listen to the podcast and take me up on that. <laughs> so turning your Bibles to Mark 8. Jesus himself outlined his physical resurrection multiple times before he was crucified. So I'm going to read three different passages that is essentially one walk, um, and he talks about these um, or his resurrection in great detail. So Mark 8.31, Jesus says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days raise again. Now, if you're anything like me and you heard this, you're just like, um, okay, Jesus is doing this weird thing again, guys. What do we do? I don't know. He makes us bread sometimes, so let's keep following him. Um, but no one listened. No one actually anticipated Jesus to actually do what he said or even understand what he was saying. Instead, the followers of Jesus expected him to do something else. They anticipated that the Messiah would actually overthrow the Roman Empire, not die on a cross and rise again. They missed it. It wasn't what they wanted or anticipated, but Jesus knew our need was greater than that. So next chapter, Mark 9, 30 through 32. Again, same walk. Um, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. Once again, they did not understand and afraid to ask. They did not get it, just like we often don't. It is interesting, though, what Jesus is saying is, essentially, I am not going to do the things that you think I'm going to do. This made people then and now choose not to believe in it, because we are actually so wicked, we want a God who does things exactly like we want him to do when we want him to do it, and if it violates that, we say God cannot be real. When Jesus does not act like we expect, it confuses people. They wanted a God just like us of our own design. So if that is you today, my prayer for you is that you will actually listen to God um, and understand who he says he is and not discount him just because he's doing something different than we expected. So next chapter, Jesus mentions his resurrection again, this time giving more detail because we're knuckleheads. So in Mark 10, 32, it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And, the, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, which are the Romans, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, 
and after three days, he will rise. Pretty concrete that time. Not a lot of room for a different interpretation, but we still don't get it. So I spent a ton of time outlining historical information about the resurrection and looking at different interpretations. Um, but you might find yourself, if you're anything like me, at this point in the sermon, asking, John, why should we care that a homeless Jewish man who died and then rose from the dead a few thousand years ago? I just don't care. This is boring. I want a sermon that makes me feel good inside. Well, church, I believe that the resurrection is without a doubt the most important truth in the world and has major implications for how we live our lives. I believe that the resurrection is the absolute truth, which means quite a few things. I was going to have more points, but it's actually only one point. Um, it means everything. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In 17, he goes further. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection gives us the very foundation of our Christian faith and without it, there is nothing. All throughout scripture, we see that because of the fall, humanity and this world are broken and in desperate need of a savior. God is clear about the cost of sin. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. So even despite our best efforts and intentions, we see that we cannot undo what has ruined us. The Bible does not just leave us there. And however, as I said earlier, um, numerous places in scripture prophesies about the Messiah, the one who will take away our sins with his sacrifice. All of Christianity hinges on this hope, and Jesus fulfilled it when he willingly went to the cross, endured unspeakable torture, and then overcame the grave. This is the gospel, the good news that we can rejoice in each day and that we can share with others. The resurrection shows Christ has the ultimate authority even over death. It shows that we are forgiven, that we are not defined by our sins, but defined by the grace that God has shown us. Once and for all, he has dealt with our sin. And all we have to do is trust him. If the resurrection is true, and I believe it is, we have reason to rejoice, regardless of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Because instead of being unrighteous sinners, we become children of God. Let's do a little thought experiment. I want you to think of the worst thing you have ever done in your life. The thing that brings you shame. The thing that as you fall asleep you can't help but think about, I am this action. I want you to think about the thing that you're trying to push out of your mind right now as I'm talking about it. It could be an addiction. It could be a failing or failed relationship. Lies, pride, assault, murder, depression, anxiety. 
that you don't care enough about your children, that you put people down to get ahead, that you use people as a means to an end, that you are selfish. Whatever it may be, think about it. Allow yourself to sit with that for a little. I'm talking about all the things that want to try and label you to become your identity. And if you participate in this thought experiment, which I think a lot of you are doing because you stopped making eye contact with me when I talked about it, <laughs> you're going to start feeling something. You might feel ashamed. And that's okay. But I want you to realize that your sin, big or small, resulted in the death of Jesus. If it was not for the resurrection, his sacrifice is meaningless. In our life is empty. It was just a death. A death that removed our sins, but where is the returning to life? We don't just need our sins forgiven. We need new life again. New life is resurrection. It would be noble to think of Jesus as he was dying on our behalf, but could we actually trust that he was God? Could we trust that he had the authority to tell us that our sins no longer matter if he didn't have power over death? The reality is, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, you would be that very action you would try and repress. You would be your mistakes, your shortcoming, and your pride. You would find yourself exhausting yourself trying to pay the debt that he has already paid. But because of the resurrection, we are forgiven, and we can go on from our mistakes to something else, and that is great news. Romans 6, 9 through 11 says this, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too must count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's amazing news. So since I asked you to participate in that thought experiment, I'll share what came to my mind when I participated. There's two things that I have historically struggled with shame about. The first is that I struggle with depression. And I think people at large, especially Christians, misunderstand depression and offer simple advice like, pray more. You got it. Um, those types of responses tend to make people feel worse, especially if that person is also a believer. So for me, depression can, be, can become something that sneaks in and absolutely defines who I am. If I let it, it becomes I am worthless. I am not good enough. I am guilty. I don't deserve to take care of myself those type of things. That is identity forming. The second area is um, an identity of lying. Um, so unfortunately, this past year, 
I found myself involved in some sin where I was lying habitually. And so my identity became, I am a liar. These lies were about my job, specifically my therapy license. I found myself lying to myself, my wife, my family, and my community. When Aaron initially asked me to preach, I was in the middle of these lies, and they continued until about two months ago when God convicted me. Since then, I have confessed my sin to those I have lied to, and it's been tough. But I feel free. I am no longer defined by my actions. Yes, I am guilty. I did things I'm not proud of. And I mourn the consequences of that. But I don't live in shame because of those things. One of the reasons that I found myself continuing these lies was that my identity was misplaced. In my own lying, I believed a lie about who I was. I believed I am a liar, which produced more and more lies. Sin immediately crept into my life and took a messy foothold. I was dead inside. The truth of the matter, though, is that I am not my depression and I am not a liar. My identity is that because of the resurrection, I am loved by God, and he alone gets to define my identity and my worth. If the one who overcame death has told me that I am accepted and loved, how can I believe the lives of someone else or myself? I can be someone who struggles with depression and someone who struggles with lying, but that is not who I am, and that's important to remember. I shared this because whatever the reason is that you feel separates you from God or others, Jesus went to the cross for it. His resurrection allows us to be forgiven. No matter what you have done, you cannot earn God's love or favor. It is given to you through the death and resurrection of Christ, and with that love, it changes our desires, and we can assume a new identity, and it'll free you. It has freed me. The band, or if you miss everything that I have said, pay attention to this. The resurrection is about new life, given to us by God himself. Tomorrow is a new day defined by God. All the promises God has made to us become a reality because of the resurrection. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did not just die, but rose from the grave and promised new life. That new life is not just eternal life. It's new life now, and it's available to you right now. So the band's going to come back up, and as they do, I invite you to take communion. I want you to remember what Christ has done for us in his own resurrection. That he didn't just die for us, but rose for us as well so we could live now. If you have something in your life that you feel defines you that is not Jesus, 
we have deacons in the back who would love to pray for you. I'll be in the back, and I'd be happy to pray as well. There are offering boxes on the side walls and in the back. We don't pass a plate here at Element because we want giving to be a response to what Christ has done. He has died for our sins, was a substitution, and then rose from the dead, showing us that he has defeated sin and death so we could trust he has forgiven us and made us new. The resurrection is the promise of new life. He will take the deadness out of you, both physically and spiritually. There's going to be sermon notes on the communion tables. Take them. Ask the questions. Um, I believe there's snacks. There's donuts at first service. I'm not sure what you guys have. But take a sermon note. Take some food and talk to people. Um, And since this is an Easter message, um, humor me. He is risen. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you are a God that we can trust with our biggest fears, doubts, inadequacies, sin, you name it. Father, I am thankful that you offer us a way to live again. I am thankful for what you have done in my life when you have convicted me of my sin and restored me to a meaningful life. Father, I pray that if people are in this place of shame, that you will reach into their lives and show them that they are loved by you. Thank you for everything that you have done for us. Amen.